Hello, everyone, and welcome to this very first episode of my podcast called Paranormal Exposed. I'm your host, Michelle, and I will be hosting a new episode every Wednesday. So I'm really hoping that by the end of this episode that you aren't sick of me and will end up tuning in for another episode. I want to start off by letting you know really what this podcast is gearing towards. I'm not looking to gear this towards believers or skeptics or true crime people. This is really just a podcast for anyone with a level of interest in the paranormal at all. And I'm assuming that if you tuned into a podcast called Paranormal Exposed, that little bit of interest must be there. For this podcast, I'm going to be really diving into the history and the facts behind each paranormal occurrence or case, whatever that may be. And I'm going to present the factual history of each topic covered. That is going to be something like your most general known item, such as if I'm covering a haunted house, what year was the house built, things like that. Then I'm also going to give you the most widely accepted story based on multiple sources. Like what is the most known thing to have occurred and what are the haunting reports. And then at the end of each episode, I'm going to be fact-checking all of this from reputable sources. And when I say reputable sources, I mean things like ancestry records, tax records, books, grave records, things like that. Um, I do use a lot of newspaper articles, although I'm going to say that they're not always the most accurate. I mean, a lot of newspaper articles are going for a news story, but I do use a lot of newspaper articles as well. And I'm going to use these sources to either support or debunk the reports as, uh, of what is said to have happened. I am going to try and present each story in an unbiased as a way as possible, but let's face it, I am a person and we are all biased in one way or the other, but I'm going to try and keep that bias out of my stories as much as possible. And as far as stories and cases go, I'm actually only going to be covering cases that have occurred in the States. Sorry, everyone outside of the U.S., but hey, it is a huge country. There's a ton of paranormal reports to cover, so I think we'll be good to go. Um, and as I said, I will cover only states, and I'm going to cover a different state each week. And once I've cycled through all of the states, I'm going to just cycle through again and again so really make sure you tune in each week so you can catch the episode from your state. As far as my beliefs, because they do impact these episodes at least a little bit, I would say I classify myself as a wannabe believer skeptic. So while I don't necessarily believe in the paranormal, I really want to be proven wrong and shown that it does exist. Um, call me a doubting Thomas, if you will. Uh, while I have had some experiences, my family is very adamant that the paranormal exists. I haven't really seen or heard anything that can't be written off with a logical explanation. So I do still have my toes dipped in more of that skeptic versus believer mindset. And lastly, before I do get into this very first episode, I wanted to give you a little bit of a backstory about how I came about doing this podcast. Um, I thought it would give you a little more insight on what I'm looking to cover and do with this podcast, but I will warn you, there is a little cliche aspect to why I got into this. I never thought that I, of all people, would be doing a podcast. I really only actually started listening to the podcast probably about a year and a half, two years ago. Um, and why I got into them is I was just sick of listening to, you know, the morning shows, the same old music to and from on my way to work. And I decided it was finally time to dip my toes into the podcasting world. And I really found that I enjoyed it even more than I thought I would. I found some great podcasts in categories, everything from science to conspiracy theories and so forth. But again, I never really thought about actually making a podcast. I mean, there's so many out there. What's the point, right? Well, here comes our cliche part is I had went to a local movie theater to see the new Conjuring movie. The devil made me do it. Yes. Here's your cliche part is a Warren case got me into a paranormal podcast. 
So the movie is based on the Enfield House Haunting. And I really liked the movie as, you know, most of the movies in the Conjuring universe, they're entertaining. I enjoy them. Though here's where you find out that I'm also a terrible person. And after a movie, I never, ever stay for the end credits. I mean, unless it's a Marvel movie, because you never know when you're going to see Stan Lee pop out at the end in one of the trailers and so forth. But after this film, I ended up just getting up, got up to walk out before the end credits rolled through when I noticed that in the end credits, they were showing actual footage and audio recordings from when the Warrens did an investigation on the case. Well, I thought that was pretty awesome, and I was pretty intrigued. So I sat down and I watched it through the end, and after that, I was just like, floored. Because while I knew that the Warrens were real-life investigators, I knew that they had done a lot of work in the paranormal, I really never thought about them as actual people. Yeah, I know that sounds terrible, but they've always just been, you know, the Conjuring Mooney movie universe actors. So after I had seen that, I became really curious about what other proof they might have from not only that case, but other cases. And I didn't really have a lot of time to sit down and really research it. So I decided to listen to some podcasts that might give me some good factual information on the cases and so forth. But If you've ever tried to go onto your podcast site and search for the Warren cases, you know what's going to pop up. You're going to get the Amityville house. You're going to get Annabelle, maybe a few other things scattered in here and there. But those are the two main things you're going to get. So I listened to a lot of podcasts on both of them, and I just kept finding the same information. It was a lot of the sensationalized stories that, I mean, if I wanted that, I could just watch the Amityville movies and so forth. I wanted the facts. And while I found some great podcasts that had a lot of great facts, I did really just find myself wanting a little more. Um, So, without further ado, welcome to my podcast. And speaking of podcasts... I just want to do one final shout out is I'd love to hear any recommendations you might have on another great podcast for me to listen to. It doesn't need to be paranormal based. I enjoy listening to all kinds of things. So I would love to hear any recommendations you might have. I will have my contact information at the end of the episode. So that way you can share those podcasts, whether it be yours or someone else's. But anyway, you have all heard me ramble on more than enough, so without further ado, I am going to get into the very first episode. And this takes place in Hanson, Idaho, which for anyone familiar with Idaho, it's just outside of the Twin Falls area. And the place I'm going to be covering is called the Sugar Ranch. Now, I spent a lot of time trying to decide which episode would be best to cover for the very first episode of this podcast. And I chose Stricker Ranch for two main reasons. Number one is I tried to listen to a podcast or two at least on some of the topics I'm choosing to cover. And I really couldn't find any other podcasts on the Stricker Ranch. Um, I do use Spotify, so I don't know if maybe it's just that basic podcast. Uh, site, but I could not find anything. So I thought this would be a great way to bring the Stricker Ranch to the podcast community. And number two, I chose it because there is such a vast amount of history and interesting facts, as well as tons of reports of hauntings of the area, because it is a very old ranch. So Uh, As far as the ranch goes, I'm going to start by giving you a little bit of history on how the ranch came to be. And this story begins with a man named Ben Holliday. And Mr. Holliday, he was the owner of the Overland Stage Company. And what this company did is it provided mail service as well as passenger service using stagecoaches. In In 1864... Ben Holiday actually acquired the mail contract 
between the cities of Salt Lake City, Utah, and Walla Walla, Washington. So he needed on this mail route what's called a stopping station. Now what that is, is back in the day, you weren't able to just hop in your mail truck, drive and deliver the post office mail. You had to go on horseback or on stagecoach, and you would be traveling miles and miles a day. And there wasn't always areas where your horse could get fresh water, or your oxen could graze on grass, or you could stop somewhere at McDonald's and have something to eat. No. It was tough going, and, you know, mail contracts were very long, passenger routes were very long. So a stopping station was important to provide those things that not only you, but your horse, oxen, and all that would use. So in 1865, Mr. Holliday had what is called the Rock Creek Station built in a small home. Uh, this was a pretty remote area, so why he chose this specific location for the station in the house is because it was where the Oregon Trail and the Kelton Road met. Now, for those of you who are from the States, you've probably heard of and are pretty familiar with the Oregon Trail. For those of you who are not, I'm just going to give a brief, brief history on it. Um, it's a trail that was over 2,000 miles long, and it ran from Missouri all the way to Oregon. It passed through seven states along the way, and it was pretty widely used um, at this time. It was for those traveling west during the gold rush, or just basically those who wanted to settle out west. For example, there was a great population of Mormons who used the trail to travel west, and they were looking for an area where they could practice their religious beliefs with a little bit more freedom. So it was a widely used road, but it wasn't actually a road per se. It was basically big ruts in the dirt going west. And people would try to follow these for the most part, and they were going through some pretty dense, unfriendly areas. They were coming across wildlife that they had never experienced, such as grizzly bears, mountain lions. They were crossing dangerous, cold, deep rivers. It was cold. The grass was scarce for animals a lot of times. And it really took about four to five months to really complete it from beginning to end. So it wasn't a very easy trek. So stopping stations existed all along the Oregon Trail and Rock Creek Station became one of those. In addition to the Oregon Trail, it also served as a stopping station for the Kelton Road, which was a 232-mile road. It was built in the 1864, and it was used to transport freight from Utah all the way up to the gold mines in northern Idaho. So all of these things required the stopping station, and it ran as the stopping station for about five years. And then Mr. Holliday decided to cease the stagecoach service, and that was because in 1869, the first transatlantic railroad pretty much made his service obsolete. I mean, it was faster, it was safer, it was cheaper to use the railroad versus trying to make that long, arduous journey. So he went ahead, ended his mail service and stagecoach routes, but the Oregon Trail, while it became less used, was still used for those traveling west. So in 1876, Mr. Holliday ended up selling the Rock Creek Station and home to a man named Herman Stricker. And along with purchasing the two buildings, he also purchased it along with 960 acres, which he used to raise horses as well as cattle. Mr. Hall or Mr. Stricker. He ended up living there by himself until the year 1882 when he married his wife, Lucy. And the two of them ran the store, and they ended up having six children together, three boys and three girls. They lived in the original home that was built by Mr. Holiday until the year 1900. And what happened in 1900 is their second to youngest daughter, Blythe, she somehow caught the home on fire that they were living in, and it ended up burning to the ground. I mean, there was no fire departments really at that time, so once it caught on fire, that was pretty much it. 
Luckily for historical records and the family, Mrs. Stricker actually ran into the burning building and pulled out a lot of the family artifacts that can still be seen on display at the Stricker Ranch today. She was able to pull out a lot of the family pictures, the organ that the family played in the living room, and she actually even pulled out the original bed that her and Herman Stricker used. In that same year, in 1900, the Strickers built a new home for the family, and it contained six rooms for eight people. So not a huge place to live in by any means, but not abnormal for that time. I mean, remember, they weren't having a separate room for bathrooms and so forth. But it was a little cramped, so in 1916, the Strickers ended up adding on to the home. And what they did is they added a dining room, they added a kitchen, a service entrance, a sun porch, and a storage room. And most importantly, in my opinion, is they added a bathroom. Up until this point, the family had been using the outhouse that was on site and still is to this day. But at that point, then they had running water and a wonderful bathroom. While the Strickers were living there and running the ranch, it consisted of their home where they lived. There was also a horse barn, which they used not only for their horses, but also for travelers coming through. It was a place where the horses could stay overnight, drink water, get cleaned up, and so forth. There was also a building known as a Joss Opium House. And what this was is it was built for the large Chinese Cantonese population that was in the area. Uh, they had emigrated to the area for the gold rush. And a Joss house was used for religious purposes for the Chinese Cantonese people. And the opium house part of it was, if you can guess, not for so much religious purposes, but a little more enjoyable purposes. There was also a blacksmith shop on site. And this was used not only to provide shoes for the horses and so forth, but it was an arduous journey. So people needed extra axles and things like that for their wagons. And this is where they could get items such as that. There was also a wet and a dry cellar, which the family was able to use to store goods to use for themselves as well as to sell. And the dry cellar actually served as a jail for a time, but I will cover that later in the episode. And last but not least, there was the Rock Creek Station that was named for the creek running through the ranch. Now, why I wanted to go through all of the buildings is just to kind of let you know what it was like at that time. It really wasn't just a ranch. It kind of functioned like a small town, and the Rock Creek Station itself was that main hub of the town. It wasn't just a place where people could come and resupply. It was also a saloon where you could get a drink. You could also go to the dance hall and have a dance with a pretty young girl. It was a post office where Mr. Stricker himself was the postmaster at the ranch for 22 years. It was a voting place. Um, it just was kind of the catch-all for the ranch. It was where most people ended up when they came and stopped by. So they ran the store selling supplies to those traveling through not only on the Oregon and Kelton Trail, but also to gold miners who would come to uh, the store to resupply or just rest up, clean up, and have a warm bed for the night. It served as a big meeting place as well for the travelers. It was somewhere where they could meet with other people who were going through the same thing as them. They could get advice all sorts of things. They could also send mail back to their loved ones, letting them know they were okay and where they were on their journey. The second floor of the Stricker home was also used to host people who needed a place to stay. And that included people like cowboys, travelers coming through, and eventually workers who were doing construction on a nearby dam and canal system. Now, in addition to the places that I mentioned on site, there was also actually a graveyard that is on the property. It 
was half a mile walk from the house, and it was not made um, for the family members who passed away. It was actually made for those who got to the ranch and for some reason never made it past the ranch. I will cover a few of those later in the episode as we get closer to the haunted portion of this. Now, in the ranch actually functioned in the manner I already stated above until 1897. And at that point, the family closed it for commercial purposes and just used it for themselves to raise their family and raising the cattle and the horses. The reason they closed it is at that time, the use of the Oregon Trail was pretty much non-existent. It wasn't really needed like it was before people were traveling by different means. So they closed it and the family actually ended up selling most of the land off eventually. And they then donated the buildings to the state of Idaho, to their historical society. And when they donated it, it came along with properties and the six acres. In 1980, it was added to the National Register of Historic Places and is owned by the state of Idaho. The reason it was added to the National Register is people were really concerned about the history behind this ranch being washed away and just left to rot. So once they added it to the register, there was a project created so that the ranch could be renovated and restored and pretty much turned into a learning facility. So a group that is called the Friends of Stricker they're a volunteer group that are really focused on educating people on the history of the area. They kind of spearheaded this um, renovation project they wanted, and they raised funds by um, donations and so forth. And the state of Idaho actually ended up contributing $500,000 to the renovations, and the group raised an additional $100,000 in donations to restore it. Now, the Friends of Stricker were also helped with the preservation methods by the Idaho State Historical Society. And with a group of volunteers, they were able to do a lot of restoration work. It looks amazing. You'll be able to see pictures on social media. And it now consists of the Stricker store is still there. The Stricker home is still there. There is a learning center, a learning pavilion that has been added outside. The original wet and dry cellar are still there, and the cemetery is still there as well. The trading store, as a fun fact, the Rock Creek store, it's actually the only original building that is still standing on the 2,170-mile-long Oregon Trail. So I feel like that's just a huge thing. I mean, for that to be the only building left standing, it's pretty cool. And luckily, not only can you visit that store, but all of the property, you can do that via a self-guided daily tour. You can go anytime during the day on your own. There's placards all around the property letting you know the history behind everything. If you want a guided tour, you can take those, but it's all volunteer run, so it's only for a few hours on Sunday, so it might be a little difficult to get out there. They also host various other events, such as murder mystery tours. They do haunted houses at Halloween time. And probably one of their most famous or popular ones is they do an after dark tour, and that kind of gets more into the haunted aspect of the property itself. Which, without further ado, I do want to get into the haunted aspect, which is why you are all probably here listening to my mouth rattle on and on. Now, before I get into who is haunting the property, I'm just going to give you a couple general things that are set to happen. Now, most of the haunted reports revolve around the Stricker home themselves. And what is said to happen in there is doors are said to open and close on their own. Lights will come on and off when no one is in the cabin. People will report being touched. Windows will also open and close on their own. Furniture will be seen being moved in the home. If you are driving up to the house, 
you may see a face in the window, even though no one is in the home at that time. And one of the main things that people actually see is they see the apparition of a young girl in the upstairs rooms. Sometimes she will be downstairs, but mostly she likes to hang out upstairs. And those are just a few of the general things that people are saying happens while they visit the Stricker Ranch. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to go through one by one all the people who are said to be haunting the Stricker Ranch and why it is said that they are to be haunting it. Like, what are they doing? So the first one probably won't come as a big shock, but that would be Herman Stricker himself. And the legend of what happened with Herman Stricker and why he haunts the property is Herman Stricker had been working all along on the ranch all day long. He was tired. He went upstairs and retired early to bed. And Lucy, she was kind of fed up with the life, and she ended up taking an axe and climbed the stairs up to the bedroom. Once she got to the bedroom, she axed poor Herman to death. And once he was dead, she drug his body all the way down the stairs to get rid of him. And if you visit the Stricker property, you can actually see the stains on the stairs from where she dragged his body down. You might think this might be a little tough for a small woman to do, but hey, remember, she pulled her own bedroom set out of a burning house, so she's pretty cool. He is said to be one of the ghosts that are haunting the second floor, and he's the one that they say caused the lights to flicker on and off, that he will open and close doors. And he's actually also said to lay a comforting hand on people. Now, I would wonder what exactly a comforting hand from a ghost is, because I'm telling you, if I'm in this house and a comforting ghost hand is laid on me, I'm going to freak out. Let's not lie. So, that is the haunting of Herman. Now, I do want to fact check a little bit here. Herman Stricker died on March 13th of 1920. And if you go through the records, the legend is not true, and Lucy did not kill her loving husband. Her records, he actually had been being treated by a doctor for about three years for a condition where he had blood in his urine. His official cause of death, per his death certificate, was the death was secondary to a growth in his left ureter. Now, at that time, things were a little different, so I don't know if this was cancer or maybe just a blockage that caused an infection. He died from that. But he did die from the ureter issue, and he died in the home itself. He is not buried on-site. He's buried off-site at a cemetery called the Magic Valley Veterans Memorial Cemetery, which is in Hanson, Idaho, so not too far from the ranch. But I could definitely see where he would want to stay on in the afterlife at his house. He put in years and years of work and love into this home. He raised his family here. His wife was here. Everything. His whole life was here. So even in death, I could see him wanting to remain in the home. Another person who I could see, for those same reasons, wanting to remain in the home would be Lucy Stricker, Herman's wife. Lucy was actually 19 years younger than Herman, and she lived for an additional 29 years after he had passed away. She also actually died in the home, and she died there on February 4th of 1949 of natural causes. And legend has it, that when she died, it was said to be one of the worst winter storms to ever hit the area. It was so bad with snow that she was laid out in the parlor for 14 days until she could be buried. And you can imagine, after that time, it wouldn't have been a pleasant experience for her family, and her ghost might want to hang out from being laid out for so long. Though... I did a little research on this as well, and I looked up the almanac records of the weather for that time. There was a record-breaking storm in Boise, Idaho, which dumped feet of snow and was, you know, just terrible. But I wasn't familiar with Boise, 
I looked into it, and it is about a two-hour drive from the Stricker Ranch. If you look at the almanac on what happened in Hanson, Idaho at that time, it is a very different story. There was no snow the day of or the day after of Lucy's death. The following days, there was some snow, but it was only zero to three inches at the max each day. So anybody living in the west or up north is familiar that three inches of snow is going to keep nobody away. So I don't believe that she was laid out in the parlor for so long. She might have been laid out for a little bit at that time, but she probably would have gone to a place where, you know, they would take care of her body there. She is buried next to Herman at the Magic Valley Cemetery, and she is actually said to be one of the most active haunts at the ranch. The current caretaker actually at the ranch says that she helps him out because as I said you can tour the place each day during the morning hours but remember there are caretakers here so you can't go just traipsing about in the middle of the night if you want to check things out at night you have to go on an after dark tour and how she helps the current caretaker is he states that she wakes him up to let him know that there are trespassers on the property. Now, how he knows that it is Lucy and maybe not Herman or someone else, I don't know. I didn't hear any reports of how he's woken up, but he does report that he believes it is Lucy. Lucy is also known to move items throughout the home, especially in the kitchen. There was one caretaker who stated that she would actually move things throughout the house when asked. For example, before the caretaker would go to bed, she would say, hey, can you move like my toothbrush from this cup over to this cup? And when she woke up in the morning, it would have been moved. She's also said to be a trickster in the home. Uh, for example, one caretaker stated that he would fill his coffee cup with coffee, leave the room for a second to grab something, and when he comes back, his coffee cup is half empty. Another caretaker stated that he would take a shower, and after his shower, he would make sure that he closed the shower curtain so that it could dry. But when he would enter the bathroom later on in the day, he would see that the shower curtain would have been opened again. So just things like that, moving items. Another big thing is the caretakers report seeing her apparition in one of the windows when no one is home. So remember, both Herman and Lucy, again, lived at the ranch most of their lives. They put in tons of work and love into it. They raised their children there. So who could blame them for wanting to stay in the home even after their passing? In addition to Herman and Lucy being in the home and said to haunt it, the other haunts are said to be those of children, either one or more. In addition to the apparition of the young girl being seen, people also report the sound of playing, the sound of children laughing, even the sound of children crying. One main theory of this is that it is the spirit of a young two-year-old boy of the Strickers. The most popular theory based on this is mostly from EVP sessions that people have done, and people will hear that it is actually Clyde, who is the child that is haunting upstairs. I did a little digging on this, and per Ancestry Records, all six of the Stricker children lived well into adulthood, even old age, and Clyde himself, who is the child heard on EVPs, actually died at the age of 90. So, probably not the child ghost. If he was haunting there, I think he'd be a little older. After some hard digging, I did find some ancestry records that the Strickers actually had a seventh child. That was a boy named William. And William actually ended up dying just two months shy of his second birthday in April of 1983. I could not find a cause of death for William, but at those times, I mean, there was a lot of diseases going around, things like typhoid fever, diphtheria, all sorts of 
stuff. So it could have been any of those conditions. Um, I mean, Lucy did nurse a lot of sick people to health. So maybe something along those lines happened. I don't know. Um, in addition to the young Stricker child, William, it's also said that there could be three other children that are haunting the home. And those, I refer to them as the ghosts of the Oregon Trail death. Now, their deaths are only documented via a gravestone that is in the Stricker family cemetery. And just to give you a little bit of insight on what that looks like, is there are a few graves in the cemetery, and on each grave is a grave marker. But they're just wooden grave markers. There's no epitaphs on each one. They're just unmarked graves. So what the Strickers um, and the friends of Stricker have done is they got a gravestone engraved to kind of cover all of the graves that are in there. And it's just the kind of, it tells who is buried there at the Stricker Ranch. And it says when they died. And some of them even say how they died. So this is how I got the records of these three children. The first one is a young girl. And she was traveling with her family when she got sick. When they arrived at the Stricker Ranch, she was already pretty bad off. And the Strickers ended up talking the family into leaving the girl behind while they continued on so that she could be nursed back to health. Now, you might think that is crazy. You couldn't imagine leaving your daughter or your son with a bunch of strangers hoping that they get better. But remember, this was a different time. These people had been traveling on the Oregon Trail possibly for months. They probably had other children. They were probably running low on supplies by this time. It wasn't something where you could just wait a couple weeks and let your daughter get better. So unfortunately, the family moved on and left the sick girl in the care of the Strickers. Now, she was very sick and ended up passing away at the Stricker Ranch and then was buried in the graveyard. A similar story is said to have happened with two other young immigrant children. I was unable to find out if they are male or female, just that they were two children. Um, the ages are unknown, but per the Stricker gravestone, two of these three children are buried in the cemetery. One was buried in 1878 and one in 1897. The third one that passed was buried on the property as well, but uh, the child was buried east of the Stricker home, and the year of that death is unknown. So any of these three children could be the kids that are haunting the Stricker home in addition to William, the child who died of the Strickers. Now, there is at least one girl, but I do not know again if the other two children are male or female. The next hauntings are said to be the shadow figures. And the shadow figures are seen around the property itself um, a lot of times in the cemetery. And they're usually seen after dark. Now, for those of you who don't know what shadow figures are, is the basic principle is they're said to be human-shaped dark figures. They don't really interact with people around them. And they're mainly seen out of the periphery of your vision. And there are quite a number of accounts of who these shadow figures might be. The first one is actually the first reported death on the property, and that is of a man named J.R. McNair. His story ends in 1874, and he drove freight for a company based out of Kelton, Idaho. He had just restocked at the Rock Creek store and was having a really hard time getting his mules and his oxen to pull his new heavily stocked cargo. So he was leaning over between his two wagons, readjusting some things, and he ended up falling and was crushed between the two wagons just north of where the cemetery is today. He died from being crushed 
And I was able to find out this information from a newspaper article that gave just those details. Again, the gravestone in the Rock Creek Cemetery. And there was also a book by Lucy's um, brother that was published that has that same information. Now, J.R. died in a very tragic way, so his spirit may have chose to stay here where he was killed. Maybe he didn't realize that he had been killed. Maybe he's still mourning what happened to him, but he is said to be one of the shadow figures. The next shadow figure is said to be that of a man named William Dowdle. William was born originally in Alabama and just was known for not being a great guy. He had went to prison for stealing a horse, and in 1875, he ended up coming over to where the Rock Creek store is. Now, this was before the Stricker family was here. And the story of how it goes is he was caught stealing a horse for a second time. And who caught him is there was a ranch stage stop operator named Charles Trotter and a cowboy at the ranch named E.D. Wilson. When Mr. Trotter saw the man, he recognized the horse he was riding, stating that it belonged to a man he knew that lived in Boise, Idaho. So Trotter and Wilson ended up apprehending William Dowdle and jailed him in the dry cellar till the officers of the law could come and get him. After he was taken, he was tried and found guilty based only on the testimony by Mr. Trotter and he was sentenced to serve two years in prison, even though nobody had even asked the man in Boise, Idaho, if it was his horse. So we don't know for sure if he actually did steal the horse or not. Now, per legend, after he was arrested, it was said that he vowed to make the place reek of dead men. He was just mad. And once he got out of jail, he headed over towards the ranch to enact his revenge plan. He arrived at the ranch on September 17th of 1877. But when he got there, his revenge plan was pretty much foiled off the bat. Mr. Wilson, the cowboy, was gone. No one knew where he was. Management had changed. The Strickers were now running the place. And Mr. Trotter was actually sick and dying of typhoid fever, and no one would let Dowdle in to see him. So he headed over to the saloon at the Rock Creek store and began drinking. And I don't know how inebriated he was or anything like that. I just know he ended up leaving the saloon and began randomly shooting his gun. He had wounded quite a number of people and ended up killing the blacksmith on site. And it finally ended when Lucy's brother, the store clerk at the time, ended up shooting and killing Mr. Dowdle with a shot to his heart. After he was killed, there are multiple, multiple reports of where Mr. Dowdle is said to be buried. The grave marker at the Rock Creek Cemetery and Lucy's brother's book say that he is buried on site at the Rock Creek Cemetery. Although there are two legends that say elsewhere. One legend says that he was buried west of the cemetery, but is buried on site of the Stricker Ranch. Another legend says that he was unearthed and later reburied, but that his skull disappeared and became displayed at a local school. Not sure how much I would put into that legend, because I don't know why a school would display the skull of a murderer. The family of Mr. Dowdle reports that his grave was robbed and that only part of his body is buried at the Stricker property. So I don't know if maybe someone did end up stealing the skull, but that it did not end up going to a school. The last reports of where he is buried are per ancestry records. And the records on Bill state that he is actually buried in Utah at the Payson City Cemetery where his family plot is. His wife and his two kids are buried there as well. So I don't know really where he is buried. Maybe part of him is buried in each place. But regardless, he was killed on site. He was, he had a bad history with the place. He had been arrested on site. He was killed on site. He had some bad, bad juju there. So with him having such high emotions of the ranch, he may be the shadow figure still lurk, 
talking about. Maybe he wants to get his revenge. Who knows? But he is said to be one of the shadow figures as well. Thirdly, we have a man named Huey Quinn. And Mr. Quinn was 35 years old at the time that he was killed. I don't have any information on his birth or his life. The only records I could find are of his death. Now, per Legends and a local newspaper um, article, they say that Huey was down by the creek when three men approached him. And he was talking to the men standing up for a friend of his, which apparently angered the three men who were talking to him. And one of the men ended up killing Huey Quinn over their argument. Now, so in order as not to get in trouble, they tried to make the murder look like self-defense. And what they did is they placed the pocket knife of theirs on him. And the one man of the group who killed him covered himself in rabbit's blood and pretended to be injured. The townspeople believed that he had been injured and it was self-defense. So they let him stay in a bed till he could recover. But in the middle of the night, he ended up skipping town with his friends. At that point, the town knew that he had been murdered, but the people had disappeared. They had no way of tracking him down. They didn't know who they were. So poor Huey was just the murder victim at that point, and he was buried over at the Rock Creek Cemetery, again per the epitaph on the burial site. Huey Quinn may be continuing on as a shadow figure looking to give info on who his murderers are, or maybe he doesn't realize he's dead. I don't know, but he is the third shadow figure that is said to be haunting there. The last reports of who the shadow figures might be is kind of my own personal theory. I mean, we have the Stricker parents, Herman and Lucy, who are said to be haunting the home. But it really surprises me that no one, other than the two-year-old Stricker child, no one says that the other Stricker children are haunting the home. And I find that interesting. I mean, they had six other children who lived into adulthood. Most of them ended up living at the ranch at the time of even their passing. And at the time of Lucy's passing, three of her sons were actually still on site doing ranch work. So they spent a majority, if not all, of their life at the ranch. Mavis Stricker, for example, she died of a heart attack at the ranch on August 20th of 1956. Roland Stricker, her brother, passed on the property as well on February 20th of 1969. The famous Clyde appears to have been living here at the time of his death as well. And Bernard, Blythe, and Gladys, the other three children, Two of them actually died at a nursing home, and the third one died at her home, which was in Kimberly, Idaho, which was not too far from there. But regardless, at the time of their passing, uh, a few of them were still living there. Most of them had spent their whole life working on the ranch and so forth. So I could definitely see them wanting to spend their afterlife here with their parents, with their deceased little brother, and maybe the shadow figures are just the men thinking that they're still working on the ranch, taking care of the property. But that is my own personal theory. There's also supposedly said a man that drowned in the creek. I think this is just the legend. I couldn't find any newspaper articles on this at all. No other mention of other than just the legend saying a random guy drowned in the creek. So I would say that's probably not a true account. Per the gravestone in the cemetery, in 1884, it was said that a gypsy woman passed away. There is no information as far as how she died, who she was, names, anything. So I don't have any other information on her. And lastly, in 1893, a woman named Mrs. Ella Snyder died. And she and her husband actually ran the kitchen at the restaurant at the Stricker Ranch. And there is record of her passing in Idaho. Her grave is in Pierce, Idaho, not on site. And I could not find any obituary records or anything like that. So I don't know for sure where she died. But I would assume that you don't really want to spend your afterlife where you work. So I'm just going to guess that Mrs. Ella Snyder maybe is not haunting the property. But I cannot say that for sure. 
So there are lots of caretaker reports and things that have been said to have happened. There's been a long history of deaths, murders on the property, things like that. And while I didn't find anything that I could definitely say makes me go, okay, this place is 100% haunted, there is enough evidence and things going on to make me say, it's a possibility I'd like to check it out. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to post some links and videos. I'm going to post photos of the ranch and so forth on the social media, including one really neat YouTube clip I saw. It has some good EVP recording evidence. We can hear sounds of moving items in the home. But one of the main things is coming from Lucy's bed, there is a video of a big orb that quickly rises up from the bed. And while I think that 99.99% of orbs are ridiculous dust particles floating around, this one was pretty large and had some good substance to it. So it didn't seem just like a dust particle. Definitely something you should check out. But what I would love to hear is your thoughts on whether you think it's haunted or not. I'd love to hear any personal experiences you may have, proof you may have, or really just any facts on the property itself. I'd also love to hear your feedback on this episode and suggestions you may have for future episodes, maybe even in your state. So make sure you tune in every Wednesday, wherever you tune in. And don't forget to leave a review and follow this podcast so you know as soon as a new episode is ready to roll out. Also, follow the social media for this podcast with more information on each episode, including pictures, links, and much, much more. You can follow this podcast on Facebook at Paranormal Exposed, on Instagram at The Paranormal Truth, or you can email me at paranormalexposedpodcast at gmail.com. And again, thank you for tuning in and I'll catch you on Wednesday.